Paul says, 2 Timothy 2, 14. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good and only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, whom I've, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We hear this during election time that we've just endured and look forward to again in a couple years. A commercial comes on and this, this candidate is being highlighted for a good reasons for you to vote for him or her. And at the end of the commercial, the voice of that person comes on, or maybe the face too, and says, I am so-and-so and I approve this message. It's one of those things that keeps people from spreading falsehood. I approve this message. My prayer is at the end of this sermon, just as with the end of our classes that were taught uh, in our class time just an hour, just in the last hour or so, my prayer is that God would come uh, into our presence and say, I am the Lord and I approve this message. That's what we want to make sure of. I, I think, too, of, of those people you found the right house for you to raise your family in and you go through all those demands, those rigorous demands of all these documents you have to hand over uh, to, to prove you are who you are and you've got this funding available and all this and these records uh, that, that you have to give over to them to be approved. And finally, finally you get the word that you're approved for this mortgage loan and you celebrate. My prayer is that at the end of every day of your life, you sense the approval of God for how you've lived your life. We look for approval in a lot of places. It's quite convenient to me that a dentist did our reading this morning. I have a friend who will not use toothpaste that doesn't have this symbol on it. American Dental Association. How many of you make sure that this symbol's on your toothpaste? You don't really care? Well, you should. You should care. These are the people who know all the credentials for the right toothpaste to do the right thing. And if they put their stamp of approval on, you can be confident. Or if you go for a if you go for a medical treatment or a medication, you want it approved by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. They are a group of people who examine all this stuff and study it out, and they finally say, it's got our approval. And you can have confidence, right, that it's right for what it's supposed to do. How important is God's approval of you to you? Does that cross your mind as you live your, lives each, your life each day? Does it say, I, I want to make sure that this decision is approved by God that this, this thing I'm doing and this word that I'm saying and this advice that I'm giving and this action that I'm taking, I want it all to be with God's approval. That's what Paul is sharing with Timothy in this particular chapter. There's this standard and there's this credential he needs to strive to maintain. And here it is in one verse, one of the best verses ever. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A workman who doesn't need to worry about being ashamed of himself, who correctly handles the word of truth. There's motivation. This is what makes us different in this world. 
I'm not looking for the approval of this person or that person or this organization or, or whatever. I'm looking for one, one eye of approval, and that is from God. That's what Paul tells Timothy. This makes life a whole lot easier. Look for his approval. I don't want to come to the end of the day and kind of hang my head in shame about the things. That, not that I wasn't, not that I didn't sin. We sin, but we know what to do with it. We know exactly what to do with it, and we can do that. And the way to do this is to handle rightly the word of truth. How in the world do you correctly handle the word of truth? This phrase means to cut it straight. To cut straight. It's like I want to make sure that this is a, a proper cut, right? And you do that. The Greek Old Testament has a, two passages in Psalm, in Proverbs that describe that had this exact word, and here it is. And you probably could fill out the rest of this yourself. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. He will cut straight your life. He will make sure that it's right. So here's what he's saying. In all your ways, pass it by God first. And all the things you're going to do, pass it by God. Acknowledge Him in the way you make decisions. And he, he won't guide you wrong. He will absolutely lead you right where you need to go. Straight and narrow, right? Or the righteousness of the blameless keeps His way straight. Do you know how the blameless person walks a straight path? He trusts the right standards of God. But the fool, the wicked, he falls. Why? Because he's following his own way. I'm going to make it up as I go. I'm going to, what do I want to do here? And what makes me feel good here? And that's what he does. The righteousness of the blameless is what keeps him straight. So here's what he's saying. You, you, you want a approval of God to where you don't have to be ashamed. Do things as God would have you do them. Believe things as God would have you believe them. Don't veer from those things. It means interpret it. It means communicate it. It means apply it properly in your life. Paul says to Timothy, that's, that's when you know, boom, you've got God's stamp of approval. This passage has a lot in it, and I'm not going to try to take it all at once. Today we're going to talk about, you know, if you want to be approved of God, there's certain things you don't do. If you want the approval of God, there are certain things you avoid. You don't quarrel about words, verse 14. Don't quarrel about those things. It does no good. Avoid, verse 16, irreverent babble, right? It's a bunch of words and a bunch of debating and a bunch of uncertainty and blah, 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 blah. And it has no content to it. It just distracts you from what's clear. <coughs> I call it verbal bait. You know, it's bait on a hook, drops down there, and it sounds really good, and you take it, and boom, you're caught. And you're caught in something that's dangerous, right? Avoid irreverent babble. And then verse 23, which I did not read, we'll read next time. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, the hot topics and the things that get people all riled up that have no real substance to them. If you want God's approval, don't get all involved and distracted by controversial debates that have no content or substance to them. And in fact, they might actually be harmless in themselves, but once you start dividing people over it, it becomes a doctrinal issue. Because you are we are told in Scripture there are th certain things to disfellowship people for. There's a list of them, 1 Corinthians 5, moral behaviors. But you know, the most common behavior that can warrant someone being excluded from the, from the fellowship has nothing to do with specific doctrine. It has to do with a divisive spirit. 
You can take something that has no real doctrinal value, heart, good or bad, and make it a divisive thing in the church, and you can go straight to hell with it. It's amazing. It's not so much what you believe, it's what you do with it. Here's what he says about these things. While they may not have significance in themselves, they have the power to distract you from what is the significant truth. These distractions do no good, verse 14. They only accomplish quarreling and division. They're a source of contention. You're not contending for the faith. You're being contentious with the faith, and there's a big difference. Many people can do that. I remember i got to be careful with this because I know there's people who feel this way, but I remember a guy who was a thorn in my side over the King James Version. It's the only one. It's the one Paul used for crying out loud. And everybody has to use it. We all need to, and anybody who uses anything else needs to be excluded. It's just, it became this, aversion can become a diversion to your faith. Almost any version you use can be used to find God and to know what he, he wants from you. Almost any of them can be. I mean, study that out a little bit, but don't start being a, 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 using it as a diversion for your faith and disrupting people and just disrupting churches. I'm fine if you love the King James Version, but I'm ready to tell you that we've the greatest evidence for what those real documents said were found since 1611. There are more accurate versions today. <gasps> right? Go ahead and use it. It's fine. There's some verses you should never quote in any other version at all. Psalm 23 should never be done any other way. But don't get so caught up in it that you make it a source of contention with everybody around you and it diverts you from obeying the truth you obviously do know already. These distractions, though, not only don't do any good, but they become harmful. The ones who present them, who advocate them, if you look at the verses 25 and 26 of this passage, you keep correcting those opponents, he says, with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. They need to repent of what they're doing with this, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They're not preaching the truth. And they come to their senses. They are out of their minds and escape from the snare of the devil, being captured by him to do his will. The devil is fine with you quoting Scripture. Just make sure you're divisive about it. He's got you right where he wants you. I mean, after all, Satan quoted Scripture to Jesus. So all of a sudden, it's not only no, doing no good, it's becoming harmful for the person who's holding it, and their hearts are beginning darkened, and they're used by Satan to divide people. And then it gets worse. Those positions then affect those who hear it. It ruins the hearers, verse 14. It makes them more ungodly. They are so hateful. They are so spiteful. They're so political and lining up who believes this and who believes this and pitting them against each other, and they become more and more ungodly in their behavior. 
and it spreads like gangrene. Have you ever seen gangrene? It's an infection that goes through your body, and if you don't cut that leg off, it will take your entire body. This is serious business. It upsets the faith of some, verse 18. Apparently, this distraction becomes contagious and divides the entire body. All from a bunch of wordy, unsubstantial, insignificant, blah, 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 blah. Now, the thing about this with Paul, if you're like me, you need an example. Give me an example, because he describes this in 1 Timothy and Titus 2, and he doesn't give any example. What do you mean by, and the reason is because you can't attack this stuff. You can't even, you can't, you can't go after it because it's kind of like cotton candy. It's kind of like jello. Yeah, nail that jello to the wall and see how that works. It just kind of, right? But, so you can't fight this stuff because there's no, there's nothing to it. It's all airy. But finally, we're given an example, and we're going to talk about that. There's these two guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Their first problem is what their mamas named them. That's the first one. Have you ever met one? Anybody named by this? Don't name your kids this. Here's what they did. They taught that the resurrection has already happened. That's a weird truth. I mean, can you imagine somebody trying to teach this today? Aren't you wondering, if we've already experienced the resurrection, what are we doing here? If, if this is it, this is the resurrection life, this right here, isn't that disappointing to you? Aren't you like wondering, I thought this was supposed to be great, and this is it. Well, here's what I think they did. They took a cultural philosophy the dominant cultural philosophy of that time was called immortality of the soul. Your spiritual life, your spirit lives forever, but your body dies and just goes to decay and does nothing, and your spirit goes on randomly out there. So the most important thing about you is your spirit, and it lives forever and your body goes away. That's immortality of the soul. You may think of Plato's cave, right? That, that's kind of the thing. But they combined that, which is purely cultural they wanted to hang with the the dominant wise cultural teaching of the day but they wanted to add some scripture to it so there was some biblical teaching that's like that notice i say some there's some biblical teaching like that because here's what it sounds like and this is what paul taught when you are immersed in the waters of baptism baptism is absolutely a centerpiece of your response to the gospel it's an embodying of it. And so when you do that, you are spiritually uniting with Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. You are being buried with him. You died with him. You rise to walk a new life. Your spirit is now dead to sin and alive to God. Is that true? Absolutely. And we celebrate it when somebody responds and, and, and is baptized like that. That truth, you, there is a spiritual resurrection you experience in baptism. But he decided that's it. And he created a hybrid. He created a hybrid teaching. You know what a hybrid is? A car that can run gas and electricity, either one. He wanted a little bit of culture and a little bit of Bible and create something really cool. And it's called, the only resurrection you'll experience is that spiritual one. And it's a great one. Baptism's it. Once you rise from all to a new life, here's your new life. And, and when you die, it, it, that spirit just keeps living. But you die. Your body's gone. 
There's one thing more dangerous than no Bible in a teaching. And it's when a false teaching has some Bible in it. When it kind of hits me and I'm like, yeah, that's, there's part of that that's true. But when you take the part that's true and you culturalize it and you make it absolute, that's when you go wrong. That's when the doctrine goes bad, right? And so this is all sorts of wrong. And you might think, well, what's so bad about that? We'll talk about it. So the first thing is, it's doctrinally wrong. It is doctrinally wrong. And I, this is, follow me here. This gets a little heady here, okay? So here's a screen. I want you to see the screen. Read it as best you can. Here's the truth. Jesus experienced an actual physical resurrection which validates what happens next. Is that true? He absolutely did. Jesus did not just spiritually resurrect. He physically came back from the dead. So when we sing that song, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. That's true. But it's not all there is. You know how I know he lives? He rose from the dead. The grave was empty. Historically, it actually happened. It's not some spiritually neat thought, an elusive kind of ephemeral thing. No, no, it actually happened. And then that leads to the second thing, that when we are immersed, we spiritually join with the actual historical resurrection of Christ which becomes your spiritual resurrection. And that guarantees what's next. You do have a spiritual resurrection. You have been resurrected spiritually. How many of you have been resurrected spiritually? Raise your hand. You are a baptizable. Yes, but that's not all. That then assures you of what's next that you are looking forward to the day when you experience a factual, actual, physical resurrection. Do you believe that? Uh-oh. You might be Philetus. Do you believe that? Because I'm going to tell you, if you're at a funeral and you believe what these two guys thought... That body's dead, ain't going to come back. Their, their spirit is floating around somewhere, and it's going to float around for eternity. That's not our doctrine, church. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. That is crazy. In the first century, they couldn't conceive of it. They called it foolishness. And it was the center of what we believe. And I know how weird it is. I've never seen a resurrected person before. I've never seen it with my own eyes. But I know Jesus did, and I know we will too. I know it. I don't care how goofy I look to everybody in the world. And see, here's what Philetus taught. Hymenaeus and Philetus. Can't get over how terrible those names are. Jesus did not experience an actual physical resurrection. Nor will you. So that third column's out. They just like the baptism teaching of Paul. You spiritually experience this refreshing. You just get a new life and you look at things different and you are a spiritual person living on a spiritual plane. And when you die, your body goes to dust and your spiritualness just floats like a Casper the friendly ghost. Right? It's flat wrong. It's flat wrong. And they were teaching in the podium in the middle of the aisle in Ephesus. 
Paul has to tell Timothy, you got to stop this mess. Now, not only is it doctrinally wrong, but it leads to all sorts of ethically wrong things. What's it hurt, really, right? It sounds good. It sounds so spiritual, right? I know people who sound spiritual. Let's talk about this for a minute. In order to believe things that sound spiritual, they must also be biblical. Did you hear what I said? There's lots of things that can sound spiritual, and there's lots of spirits in the world. John says, test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false spirits have gone out into the world. There's all sorts of spiritual things out there, but they must be biblical if you're going to believe them. All right. What happens if you just think, well, immortality of the soul? Well, there's two common ethical issues. This is a continuum. I want you to see the continuum. There's people all along this, and Christianity actually belongs in the middle. But one side says, if that's true, immortality of the soul, and we live in this spiritualness, and we have an ethereal spiritual body and all that stuff, well, then what you do with your physical body has no spiritual significance at all. God doesn't even care about this physical thing. There's, it's just going to die and go. So in Corinth, you know what they did? People thought, hey, I love that teaching because it doesn't matter what I do with my body. So these men were saying, hey, uh, could you take care of the kids Friday night? I'm going to go consult the prostitute. After all, what I do with my body doesn't matter. On the other extreme, this was in 1 Timothy 4, where these people who said the body is so significant that you have to deny the body what it desires in order to be true to your spirit. And so they were saying you can't marry, you can't eat meat. They were ascetics, people who just deny themselves whatever they want. And because, because we believe in the immortality of the soul, either two extremes all flow through this the resurrection has already been experienced, and it's all we're going to experience is this one. This doctrine was wrong, and it leads to ethically, morally wrong behavior, and Paul is saying, just pay attention to this. Pay attention to this, Timothy. Don't get wrapped up in that wordy, obnoxious, sounding wise, blah, 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 blah. It's babble. That's kind of an onomatopoeia. Anybody know what an onomatopoeia is? Blah, 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 blah. Question. I mean, all this sounds textually great, right? But what about today? Can you think of hybrid teachings that we, even in the church, sometimes finding ourselves uh, advocating? We like these teachings that have a kernel of Scripture in them that we can add a little bit of our culture to it. And it sounds spiritual, and it almost sounds like it makes total sense. And in fact, you feel like a real idiot when you point out to somebody who in our culture is completely, absolutely advocated. This is absolutely true. And to question it makes you not only anti-God, but anti-American, right? There's three of them I want to bring up, just to throw out at you. Number one is this, God wants me to be happy. In our culture, this is a big thing. And, and what, what kind of God, God bless America, what kind of God would not want me to thrive and maximize who I really am and me to be happy. But, but you see, he, did, he does want you to be happy, uh, as in blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs, the kingdom. The, all the Beatitudes are 
Those who are blessed of God look like this, and those characteristics look nothing like the American dream. God does want you to be happy on His terms. He knows how you were created. But we don't like those. We want to change the terms. We want, I want to be happy, and, and I know that God wants He would endorse anything. And in the name of this doctrine, I hear people divorcing. I hear people, Christians, living together before marriage. It just to see if this works out. I'm going to see if I'll be happy or not. And it makes total sense with this in the background. But listen, guys, that's a hybrid teaching that has just enough truth to get you to hell. And we've got to call it sometimes. We've got to blow the whistle and say, no, 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 don't fall for this stuff. Materialism and greed, go for that American way of life. And, but if, if you go for that American way of life, you will not be generous when it comes to giving in the offering or helping people in need. You won't be. You won't be. So who are you going to listen to? Here's a second one. Good people go to heaven. Good people go to heaven. You take a poll of Americans, they're going to tell you, uh, while we, we, we're, we're the nuns, we don't go to church anymore, but we still believe in heaven. Not, not, don't really like hell. We kind of got rid of it. But we do like heaven. We'll claim that one for ourselves. And we know who's going to go there. It's anybody who's good, who lives their life, you know, kind of obeying the rules and not harming anybody else. And the American definition of good. You know, it's really true. There's only one person going to heaven. And it's Jesus. And you have to be in Jesus if you want to get there. It has nothing to do with good it has nothing to do with that American behavior and citizenship. It has nothing to do with you know, how you necessarily interact with others. It's about living out the Christian faith. It's a doctrinal statement. Good people go to heaven is a doctrinal statement that has great ethical ramifications. Here's the last one. Pursuing holiness. Pursuing holiness. Trying to be holy like God is kind of optional. Do it if you can. Do it if you have the time. Do it if it's convenient for your life. But if you don't, it's okay. It's because once you become right with God, you can never choose to forsake that. I just want to give you one verse for this before we quit. And it's Romans chapter 8. The great Christian chapter of the Holy Spirit. So then, brothers, we have an obligation. This version says debtors. We have an obligation, but not to the flesh, the worldly way of life, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now let me, let me ask you to finish this sentence for me. If you, by the Spirit, do not put to death the deeds of the body, what will happen? Is it optional to engage in the spiritual battle against sin in your life? Is it an optional thing? It is not an optional thing. It's part of who we are and what God called us to. So the doctrine of, you know, pursue holiness, that pursuit is optional, is not true. But boy, do people advocate it. Here's a clear truth to end today on. Do your best. Do your best to present yourself to God as one who's approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth. You can enjoy God's approval. 
And in fact, it should be your highest value, right? And the fact is, he made known to us very clearly what is what it is that will make us approve to him. And that's his grace. You can know what he wants. You can live by the Spirit in a way that receives God's approval. And my admonition is this. Do it. Do your best this week to present yourself to God as one he approves of. You know how. You know by what means. So do your best. If there's anything you need this morning to spiritually help you with that pursuit, make it known now as we stand, as we sing the invitation song.